Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the downing of a U.S. unmanned aircraft over the Black Sea by Russian fighters that dumped fuel on the Reaper drone before colliding with a propeller which led to the drone operators crashing it into the sea. Joining us to discuss what technical intelligence the Russians might gain from resurrecting pieces of the drone from the bottom of the sea, as Putin's national security adviser has vowed to do, is John Pike, one of the world's leading experts on defense, space and intelligence policy. He is director of globalsecurity.org, which is focused on innovative approach to the emerging security challenges of the new millennium. John Pike previously worked for nearly two decades with the Federation of American Scientists, where he directed the space policy, cyber strategy, military analysis, nuclear resource and intelligence resource projects. He's also been at the forefront of utilizing satellite imagery to monitor worldwide weapons facilities. Then we'll look into the hearing today in Amarillo, Texas, before an anti-abortion zealot, federal judge Matthew Kazmarek, who entertained ludicrous and unscientific objections to an abortion drug that was approved by the FDA 22 years ago and has a record of safety better than Viagra and Tylenol. Joining us to assess the likely ruling to ban Mifepristone nationwide is Ushma Upediai, a professor of reproductive health in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the co-director of the University of California Global Health Institute's Center for Gender and Health Justice. A public health social scientist and an expert on abortion safety, access, and law, she is the principal investigator of the California Home Abortion by Telehealth Study, which examines the safety, effectiveness, and acceptability of telehealth for abortion. Then finally, we'll examine the fallout from the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, with banks in Europe now under stress and Credit Suisse stock plunging after Saudi investors refused to throw more good money after bad. Joining us is Dennis Kelleher, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Better Markets, Inc., a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization that promotes the public interest in the U.S. and global financial markets. Better Markets is a Wall Street watchdog and has been referred to as quote, a persistent thorn in the side of Wall Street. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is John Pike, one of the world's leading experts on defense, space, and intelligence policy. He is director of globalsecurity.org, which is focused on innovative approaches to emerging security challenges of the new millennium. Pike previously served for nearly two decades with the Federation of American Scientists, where he directed the space policy, cyber strategy, military analysis, nuclear resources, intelligence resources projects. He's also been at the forefront of utilizing satellite imagery to monitor worldwide weapons facilities. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Pike. Boy, that fellow's been busy. <laughs> so are you getting even busier now that uh, there's been a clash between the United States Air Force and uh, the Russian Air Force, which in itself uh, is evidently, evidently. Not, a, uh, not a good thing? And, uh, and an unusual thing. Normally they manage to avoid bumping into each other, but this time it looked like uh, the Russians had other ideas. And we're talking about a U.S. Reaper drone that was intercepted by two Russian fighter jets yesterday at 7 a.m. local time. The two Russian Su-27 fighter jets flew over the drone for about 30 to 40 minutes. One of them dumped fuel on a number of occasions in front of the drone uh-huh. and then and then apparently came so close that it clipped one of the propellers and then the drone then became unmanageable and unflyable, so 
the operators. I don't know whether they are somewhere in Las Vegas, I think. But in any case... Something like that. Yeah, they, <laughs> on the other side of the planet. Right. They just nosedived the, the drone into the Black Sea. So That's right. I guess the big question now, John, is what could the Russians recover? Well, there's a drone at the bottom of the Black Sea. The Russians have invested an enormous amount of uh, effort into ocean engineering, recovering stuff off the bottom of the ocean. And they certainly have capabilities that would enable them to find and uh, raise the uh, wreckage of the drone. Whether those capabilities are currently in the Black Sea or whether they'd have to be brought in from elsewhere in Russia is a different question. But uh, the Russians would be able to bring to bear salvage capabilities far more readily than the Americans would. The uh, Dardanelles, the Bosphorus, the Straits are closed right now to military ships under the Montreux Convention, and so the Americans would not be able to get a salvage tug in there. So Putin's national security advisor, Nikolai Petrushev, has said on, on state TV that they are going to try and recover it. The Pentagon saying it's actually in deep water, although the Black Sea itself is not that deep, is it? Well, relative to the Pacific Ocean, for instance, no. It's relatively shallow, hundreds of feet. So if they were able to recover this U.S. Reaper drone, what would the Russians get out of it? Well, the bad news is that they would get a drone that's significantly more sophisticated than anything the Russians are currently operating in Ukraine. The Russians were early leaders in the drone business, but after the uh, collapse of the end of the Cold War, uh, they lost a few decades, and now they're trying to play catch-up. They're basically where the Americans were back in the 1990s. It's a, certainly a more advanced drone than anything the Russians have right now. That's the uh, problem, though, that it incorporates technologies that are simply beyond uh, those that Russian industry would be able to replicate. This is a problem that the Soviet Union had throughout the Cold War, that it was far easier for them to steal Western secrets than it was for them to do anything with it. The atomic bomb was probably the exception. When this drone crashes, and apparently would break up, I imagine, what can, right. what can you retrieve from the electronics? I mean, the... well, it's all down there, you know. Mm. I mean, the wings, the fuselage, the cameras, the guidance computers, the navigation, it's all down there. Mm -hmm. uh, and presumably it's in a, a finite number of chunks. And like I said, the Soviets have lots of recovery capabilities that would enable them to go looking for it and presumably to find. Uh, some significant fraction of what uh, what there is to be recovered. Whether the Americans have some sort of uh, explosive device on the drone itself that would blow it up and uh, render the interesting parts into small fragments, I don't know. Like they had with the U-2. That's right. But Gary, uh, Gary Powers did not use, did not, uh, he circumvented <laughs> the, the explosive device and parachuted out, and, and they got the U-2 intact. Didn't, the rest kill, didn't kill himself either. So. Right. But that's the, that's the thing that people are remembering is what happened to the U-2. And the uh, Soviets were not able to replicate the U-2. Some years after that, they came up with their own counterpart to the U-2, uh, the Mystic, but it was in no sense a U-2 replica. And the U-2s are still flying. The U-2s that took pictures of the the so-called uh, Chinese spy balloon recently. Well, uh, it, perfection's hard to improve on, and uh, the U-2s, even though the original ones, the old ones from the 1950s, even though those have been retired, more recent uh, airframes, versions of the U-2 are still flying and still an important part of our intelligence collection capabilities. It's hard to improve on perfection. So just touching on the Reaper drone itself, according to the Defense Department's unclassified selected acquisition report, 
Reapers have flown for around 330,000 hours each year. Yes, that's right. That's right. And they're One expensive. of the big advantages that we have, one of the big advantages that the United States has relative to everybody else on the planet is that our drones have an enormous amount of time in the air. Uh, our drone operators have an enormous amount of time to practice and perfect their tactics, techniques, and procedures. And this gives uh, the United States an advantage that other countries simply can't replicate. It's much easier to replicate the external appearance of a drone than it is to replicate the innards of the thing. And the innards are not that hard relative to the skill that the operators can only get by flying thousands of hours. That's something the Americans do and other countries don't. And the plane's endurance is about 27 hours, but its speed is, top speed is only 276 miles per hour. So the Russian jets would have had to slow down to dump fuel on it. And and from the description that we're getting of what happened was uh, one of the jets was approaching the uh, drone from uh, behind and didn't slow down, overtook the drone and hit the propeller at that point. It's not clear whether they intended to actually damage the drone by physical contact. It is clear that they intended to interfere with the drone because you had two aircraft out there. It was not simply one rogue pilot, uh, and they were flying in tandem with the drone for the better part of half an hour and dumped fuel on it to interfere with it on more than one occasion. So this was not uh, an accident. This was an intentional intervention. And the drones themselves cost, at least the units of four aircraft, cost $56.5 million, according to the Air Force. Um, and the annual funding of the program has declined. It reached its peak of $800 million during the Obama administration. So the Air Force is not buying any more of them, right? They're buying larger and more sophisticated drones. And uh, the overall fleet at the Pentagon right now is over 10,000 unmanned air vehicles. Most of them are dinky little drones that uh, small army units would use, but we've got some really monster drones that are also in the pipeline. And these are much more advanced than the one that the Russians just uh, downed? Uh, The Reaper has been around for quite some time, for well over a decade, and significant progress has been made since then in terms of drones that would fly higher, further, uh, lower visibility, and overall give the United States improved capability. So this is not the bleeding-edge capability. And in 2019, a Reaper drone was shot down over Yemen by a surface-to-air missile. The United States blamed Iran for that. So this is not the first time the U.S. has lost a Reaper drone. No, it's not the first time we've lost a Reaper. It's far from the first time that we've lost other drones. Uh, Iran has uh, shot down several other drones. In fact, uh, they have uh, uh, paraded what they claim to be a replica of uh, the monster of Kandahar, uh, so-called a stealth drone. It may look like that uh, American drone on the outside, but I can guarantee you it's not the same on the inside. So that was the one that went, how did they do that? Did they actually hack into a drone and redirect it away from Afghanistan into... Well, I think the the details are a little obscure, but they certainly managed to recover the wreckage of such a drone and uh, build something that on the outside uh, sort of looked like uh, the American drone. The problem is not making something look like it on the outside. The problem is making it stealthy and then knowing how to operate it, and that's something the Iranians aren't up to yet. I remember talking to you at the time that that drone went missing. The thing crashed in Iran, probably broke up, but then they rebuilt it to make it look like they captured it intact. Is that what you're saying? That's right. That's correct. Right. So back to the Black Sea, when the Pentagon, of course, Kirby... Their uh, spokesman, Admiral Kirby, said, I'm not sure we're going to be able to recover the drone. And I mentioned that, on the other hand, Petrushev 
Putin's national security advisor, who many consider to be possibly his successor, has said that they've... And rushed... he's quite a piece of work, let me tell you, okay? Oh, I know. He I is. Mean... He's an uber-hawk, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. So... A hawk's hawk. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that apart from the Secretary of Defense accusing the Russians of being unprofessional, uh, where's this thing heading? Is this going to be a crisis, do you think, or are both sides going to try and play it down? Well, I don't know. That's the interesting question, isn't it? The fact that it was two airplanes, the fighter planes from Russia, the fact that they were up there together with the drone for over half an hour, uh, the fact that they dumped fuel on more than one occasion, all of that suggests that they were obeying orders uh, from their uh, immediate commander. And it's hard to imagine that some uh, wing commander would be coming up with this on his own without direct orders from the Kremlin. That suggests that the Kremlin's looking for some sort of escalatory confrontation. I don't think the Americans have any interest in playing that game. So I am assuming that in this case, uh, the United States is just going to walk away from it. I think we've got other fish to fry. Well, it's the Russian propaganda narrative that they're telling their people from the beginning of this war over a year now in Ukraine. They tell they tell their people that they're fighting the Americans, not the not the Ukrainians. That the Ukrainians are puppets of the Americans. So obviously, the U.S. doesn't want to get involved. Play into that narrative. Yeah, and certainly the United States has been doing everything reasonable to deny that narrative. Of course, the challenge is that, as with any good propaganda, and the Russians know how to do propaganda, it has a kernel of truth. Uh, They may be uh, Ukrainian soldiers, but many of them are wearing uniforms provided by NATO. Uh, Increasingly, they're using weapons provided by NATO. They're using weapons that NATO designed during the Cold War, to uh, fight Moscow's weapons, and that's exactly what they're doing. So when the Russians say that they're not just fighting Ukraine, that they're fighting the collective West, as they call it, they're not that far from the truth. And so when, for instance, uh, Ron DeSantis says that this is just a local territorial dispute that's not our problem, uh, I think he fails to understand what's at stake here. So would you say then, John Pike, that Putin's best play, since he's not doing well on the battlefield, his best play would be to influence the U.S. Congress with two Republican leading candidates, Trump and DeSantis, for the presidency, both wanting to cut aid to Ukraine? Is that Putin's best play? Well, certainly the play of trying to freeze the Europeans didn't work this year. Global warming had a silver lining in this case. And so I think that Putin's next play is to hold out on the battlefield pending uh, our election next year in hopes that uh, the Congress is more aligned to Russian interest and particularly in hopes that they get uh, somebody in the White House uh, who basically wants to cut and run. So... I know it's out of your far afield from what you do, John Pike, but just in closing... Oh, that doesn't stop me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I will ask your opinion. Go ahead, please. What motivates Tucker Carlson? Because it was Tucker Carlson's questionnaire to both Trump and DeSantis that led to DeSantis making this declaration that you just quoted, where he thinks it's just a local territorial dispute and the U.S. should have nothing to do with it. Tucker Carlson clearly has an important role here in helping Putin, and I don't, for the life of me, know why. Do you have any ideas? Sure. I mean, Putin, if you look at a lot of his speeches over the last couple of years, has uh, postured himself as a leader of the traditional values uh, political tendency. Uh, He's very much aligned with a lot of uh, the right-wing forces in Russia who are very much aligned with right-wing forces in other countries like Viktor Orban and one uh, wing of the Republicans here in the United States. And so Tucker, I think, is pandering to that part of the Republican base that uh, DeSantis and 
Trump are also pandering to. I don't think it's a majority of uh, Republican voters. I don't think it's a majority of Republican politicians. But it is a significant uh, part of uh, the Republican base, and all of these people are uh, pandering to it, even though it's in Russia's national interest, not America's. Well, John Park, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with John Pike, one of the world's leading experts on defense, space, and intelligence policy. He's the director of globalsecurity.org, which is focused on innovative approaches to the emerging security challenges of the new millennium. He previously worked for nearly two decades with the Federation of American Scientists, where he directed the space policy, cyber strategy, military analysis, nuclear resource, and intelligence resource projects. And he's also been at the forefront of utilizing satellite imagery to monitor worldwide weapons facilities. We're going to be station breaking back looking into the hearing today in Amarillo, Texas, before an anti-abortion zealot, federal judge Matthew Kasmerik, who entertained ludicrous and unscientific objections to an abortion drug that was approved by the FDA 22 years ago and has a record of safety better than Viagra and Tylenol. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Ushma Upadhyay, who is a professor of reproductive health in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the co-director of the University of California Global Health Initiative's Center for Gender and Health Justice a public health social scientist and expert on abortion safety, access to law. She is the principal investigator of the California Home Abortion Telehealth Study, which examines the safety, effectiveness, and acceptability of telehealth for abortion. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Ushma Upadhyay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And a federal judge in Amarillo, Texas today, who is known for his extreme and somewhat zealous attitudes to abortion and who's been basically sought out by an anti-abortion group that's sort of settled in Amarillo to get standing in the court and uh, it's known as court shopping and uh, they're expecting him to ban one of the abortion drugs, Mifepristone, nationwide and from what we saw of the court hearing today which was largely secret and was only posted at the last minute but nevertheless, a representative from the drug company and from the Biden administration were able to argue against the Texas-based group called Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, who brought the suit against Mifepristone, which, which was approved by the FDA 22 years ago. 23. So this is an extraordinary situation. Had If it rules the way people fear, this judge will rule based upon his own personal and religious beliefs it could basically undermine the FDA's ability to regulate drugs. Is that how you see it? Yes, I think I think the number one most important thing to know is that this case is completely baseless. It has it's not based in any evidence. The this medication has been studied for decades, um, and it has a safety rating of well over ninety nine percent, and so. You know, over 5 million women in the U.S. have used it over the past 23 years since it was approved in the year 2000. So, uh, yeah, it's it's quite frightening that this group could bring a, a lawsuit in a, a cherry-picked jurisdiction and expect that they might uh, be able to overturn a decision that was that has such a long-standing, has been in place for 23 years. Well, what was alarming was that Judge Kaczmarek seemed to entertain the arguments coming from the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine plaintiffs that were ludicrous and unscientific and 
the idea that you have to ban this drug because it's not safe and it wasn't properly tested. Normally, drugs are tested for about 18 months by the FDA. In this case, Mifepristone was tested for 54 months. And its mm. record after 22 years, record is equal to Viagra and Tylenol. Mm-hmm. If not better. If not right. safer than those. That's right. So what's happening here? Is this just a weak casualties of post-truth America and the power and influence of far-right politics, uh, which have yeah. infected our courts and particularly the Supreme Court, and not to mention the Fifth Circuit in Texas? I think they're feeling emboldened. You know, they're emboldened by a current Supreme Court who uh, favors anti-abortion uh, beliefs. You know, what's also important to know about this medication is that it is a first-line treatment for miscarriage. So whether people live in a state that has banned abortion or not, there's going to be a continued need for this medication, mifepristone, to treat, uh, to treat miscarriage or pregnancy loss. It helps people along um, treat the... Uh, help people experiencing miscarriage expel the contents of the uterus more um, efficiently. And if it's banned, then what's left is the second drug, which yes. is effective but not as effective, and the idea is to take mifepristone first and then the second drug after that. So if you're left doing the second drug only, it makes the process more difficult and, and more painful, doesn't it? Sure. So the first medication, methapristone, actually stops the pregnancy from growing and also begins the process of um, separating the uterine lining um, from the, the wall. So it begins the process. And then the second medication, misoprostol, helps the uterus contract and empty um, and so the second medication is the one that really is, is induces the bleeding after, during an abortion. And so, yes, you could, uh, patients can safely take just the second medication. The downsides is that it is slightly less effective, meaning, um, you know, the, the MIFI plus, MIFI plus misoprostol regimen has about a a 97% effectiveness rate, which means about 3% will have to have another uh, procedure to complete the abortion. Um, with misoprostol alone, that rate is, is about 93%. So that means more people will have to go um, get subsequent care to complete the abortion. And the other thing is that it leads to more higher rates of side effects and more prolonged bleeding. And so that is going to be really difficult for people, especially those who live in states that have banned abortion and who are traveling many hours to obtain care. Well, there was a hint from this anti-abortion judge uh, who was literally chosen because of his ideology by the plaintiffs. He sort of indicated that there may be a compromise position where he wouldn't ban the drug outright, but he would make it more difficult to get the drug. You'd have to have in-person, I guess, consultations to get the drug. You can't, it couldn't be mailed, as is the case mm -hmm. now. Is that something that you think is likely to happen? As a short, short and outright well. ban? Yeah, I mean, we've made so much progress in expanding access to this medication. Um, our research shows that telehealth for abortion, where you have a consultation with a clinician through telehealth, um, and then you receive the medications by mail, it is extremely effective, and it really has reduced the amount of time people um, are required to travel to get an abortion, because, as you know, clinic are so far and few between abortion clinics, places where people can get these medications. So it would be truly devastating if, you know, if there was any type of decision to draw, you know, withdraw any of the approvals to allow expanded access to this medication. It just seems extraordinary that just a few individuals, because of their 
zealous beliefs could have wield so much influence in this country. It's as though, you know, this is the tyranny of the minority. And as I mentioned earlier, if this thing goes, and it will be appealed one way or the other, either side will appeal it, then it goes to the Fifth Circuit, which is incredibly conservative with uh, Republican-appointed judges, and then, then it would go to the Supreme Court, which we know is also mm-hmm. incredibly conservative. So at least in terms of women's rights and bodily autonomy, nobody's out of the woods on this one. Mm-hmm. And it will certainly send the abortion care um, service delivery world into chaos. I, I think that there's going to be uh, an adjustment period. People are not going to know what's legal, what's not legal. It's going to take time for clinics to adjust their protocols, figure out what to do. Um, some, you know, even even patients in California. That's the other thing is I don't think people they're they're hearing a little bit about the case, but they're probably thinking, oh, that will only affect the the states, certain states in the South or certain states that have Republican legislatures. But no, this decision is going to affect people in all 50 states. And I think it's going to cause um, a, lo- a pretty large disruption to the to service delivery world. So given uh, that there is likely to be a, a terrible wake-up call very soon, Judge Kaczmarek said that, that he would make his ruling soon, then what are the recourses? I mean, we know that the Biden administration will will appeal, the Justice Department. Their lawyer argued today, Julie Strauss-Harris, before the judge, saying public interest would be dramatically harmed. Um, Mm. And also the manufacturer's attorney, Danko Laboratories, argued that the plaintiffs have no standing in the case. And Memphis Stone had an impressive safety and efficacy record, which we've already discussed, and it's totally thoroughly established. So as somebody that's, whose professional practice is going to be directly impacted by this, what are you holding out hope for? So I'm a public health scientist, and I'm going to bear witness. I'm going to document the impacts of any decision that comes out. Um, I'm not a legal scholar, but I have uh, heard that there are um, there are some legal scholars that have said that there are avenues that the FDA could pursue, um, including exercising enforcement discretion, um, you know, thinking more about what exactly they are um, legally obligated to do once the decision comes out, you know, taking a thorough look at the decision and what the FDA's legal obligations are. Uh, I I do hope that the Biden administration and the FDA pursues any avenue they can to to safeguard access to mifepristone. So given that um, this judge was literally chosen by the plaintiffs because of his views, and he was chosen by Donald Trump on the basis that Donald Trump promised to put anti-abortion judges on the court, which he's done. I mean, you'd think that, for example, the Republican Party is having buyer's remorse from the recent Supreme Court decision, Casey, because the polls are indicating that, you know, it's a huge percentage, up to 90% of Americans are against it. And this is arguably not just an abortion ban, this is also moving into the area of contraception, isn't it? Well, this decision... um you know, it's there's no telling where it could go from here or what other uh, reproductive services uh, could be curtailed or or could be litigated next. You know, we there has been um, talk that they could be trying to ban IUDs next. Um, also, emergency contraception, which is clearly a contraceptive method. Um, you know, it, there's really no telling what what they will try to stop next. But if you ban the abortion pills, and or at least one of them, don't you make surgical abortion more likely? And, and that's less safe than the incredibly safe uh, chemical abortions available now. Yep. Um, 
Yeah, the, the term is medication abortion. Chemical abortion is a term that the anti, anti-abortion advocates made up to make it sound, um, you know, less natural um, and, and more dangerous. But um, pers- oh, excuse the, me uh, for, being, for being inf- <laughs> brainwashed. Influenced <in>. by. <laughs> right. um, but procedural abortion, which is the alternative, um, the, the safety and efficacy, uh, they're about the same um, as a medication abortion, but the procedural it is, in fact, harder to access because of that distance. So people right now, we've done it, we did an analysis, people are having to travel eight up to eight hours to obtain an abortion. And the distances increased most for Black women and Native American women. We have a paper in JAMA published a couple of months ago showing that. So it's people who are most marginalized who are not going to be able to travel. Um, they're going to be affected most. You know, it's difficult for people to leave their jobs for several days for a, a, a journey like that, to leave their children, to, you know, make, make you know, find the funding to pay for gas and pay for hotels. It's it just is too uh, difficult to process for so many people who've never left their state before and that it might push abortion out of reach and lead people to carry unwanted pregnancies to term. But the anti-abortion people, obviously, uh, doing this, targeting this judge, they're very strategic, they're very aggressive, and they seem to be working on all kinds of levels. For example... Walgreens, one of the big pharmacy chains, they've been buffaloed and intimidating into taking Mifepristone off the off the shelves, have they not? Yes, that's a that's another issue. Um, you know, we just the FDA just ruled that pharmacies can now dispense medication, Mifepristone, just like any other normal medication. It's finally starting to see that this medication is as safe and should be available just like um, Viagra or any other prescription medication. And um, now Walgreens is, has said that they wouldn't sell it um, even in states that, that where abortion is legal. So it just doesn't make any sense. Um, they said 20 states they're, they're not going to sell it in while um, only about 14 states have banned abortion. So it's unclear what they're, how they're going to decide what states they'll sell it in and what states they won't. And then I just wanted to return back to the point that this is a first-line treatment for miscarriage. And so by saying that they're not going to sell it, even in states that ban abortion, they're preventing people from experiencing, people from having access to these medications in states um, for, for people who are having a miscarriage or pregnancy loss. And so it, it just doesn't make any medical sense. And for a company to value politics, for a pharmaceutical company to, to value politics over people's health uh, is a mistake. But it's not just politics, Ushma. It's minority politics. Again, it's the tyranny of the minority. Mm-hmm. They're being buffaloed by a zealous minority at the expense of the majority, and I don't know whether you could say the majority is passive. I don't know. I mean, you're a doctor. If you have a patient who has a miscarriage, and if you can't give them that drug, what mm-hmm. do you do? Yeah, it's it's quite upsetting for, for doctors to not be able to provide the care that they were trained to give. The best care that they are able to give, their hands are completely tied. And, you know, we're also seeing this in hospitals where people need, in in states where abortion is banned, people need life-saving abortions and they're not getting them. And doctors are having to make a decision between, you know, following federal law, which requires uh, providers to give life-saving care and state law. And the state is the one that governs their license. And so we're seeing that so many patients are not being given the treatment they need, that they, that the law would allow them under the exceptions. Um, and they're just forced to travel in a state of, you know, of illness, having to travel hundreds of miles. Well, I thank you for joining us. It's a very 
depressing day. The worst hasn't happened, but I don't think we can hold our breath and expect some miracle here from this zealous anti-abortion judge doing Mm -hmm. the right thing for patients and the majority of Americans as opposed to imposing his own personal religious beliefs on the nation. But that's where we are, and I thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for, for covering this important topic. And again, I've been speaking with Ushma Upediai, who is the professor of reproductive health in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the co-director of the University of California Global Health Institute's Center for Gender and Health Justice, a public health social scientist and an expert on abortion safety, access, and law. She is the principal investigator of the California Home Abortion by Telehealth Study, which examines the safety, effectiveness, and acceptability of telehealth for abortion. We're going to take a brief station break and back, examining the fallout from the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, with banks in Europe now under stress and Credit Suisse stock plunging after Saudi investors refused to throw more good money after bad. It has always been around. It will always have a niche. But they'll make it a privilege, not a right, accessible only to the rich. Hey, pro-lifers need to dig themselves because life don't stop after birth. And for a child born to the unprepared, it might even just get worse. The situation would surely change if they were to find themselves in it. Supporters of the H-bomb and firebombing clinics. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dennis Kelleher, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Better Markets, Inc., a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization that promotes the public interest in the U.S. and global financial markets. Better Markets is a Wall Street watchdog and has been referred to as, quote, a persistent thorn in the side of Wall Street. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dennis Kelleher. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Dennis. And in terms of whether or not there's a contagion following the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, one of the sort of big names on Wall Street, Larry Fink, uh, the head of BlackRock, uh, said that the SVB collapse may be the start of a slow-rolling crisis. Do you see it that way? Well, it's completely unclear at this point. It should be remembered that today actually is the 15th anniversary of the collapse of the Bear Stearns Investment Bank in 2008. That happened on March 15th of 2008, and everybody thought that the rescue that was engineered uh, for that particular bank, it basically collapsed and was sold for next to nothing to J.P. Morgan Chase with uh, the U.S. taxpayers on the hook for about $30 billion dollars. Um, but when that was done in uh, March of 2008, people thought that the crisis was stemmed and that uh, things were going to stabilize. And, of course, we now know that uh, during the summer things got worse. And by September 15th of 2008, Lehman crashed and we had the worst financial crash since 2000 or 1929. So uh, I think people should be standing watch and not being overly optimistic about handling what is happening or not happening. Uh, we have a serious uh, seriously fragile financial system at the moment, uh, both in the United States and around the globe. And the crash and collapse of Silicon Valley Bank um, was an illustration of that. The failure of Signature Bank um, was a sign of that. The current uh, concerns about Credit Suisse, a uh, globally systemically significant bank in Switzerland, uh, is right now attempting to be addressed by the Swiss authorities. So we'll just have to see how this plays out. But I think uh, people need to be um, uh, realistic that uh, this is not a one or a two bank issue. This is a banking system financial issue. And it is because we had just got through four plus years of deregulation of the financial industry under the Trump administration. And they didn't just deregulate two banks. They deregulated the financial industry, and when you deregulate the financial industry, they increase their risky activities, which increases their bonuses, which increases their profits, which makes them happy, but it endangers um, the financial system and, frankly, all Americans. Well, a lot of Democratic senators, of course, voted in 2018 for, for the Trump administration's rollback on regional banks having stress tests and having to have more capital on on the books. 
and they reduce that liability or that requirement, you know, cinema, mansion, Tim Kaine, who was the vice president from running, running mate for Hillary Clinton, Warner. Well, that's, that, that's true. Um, there was a law in 2018 passed on a bipartisan basis that uh, loosened the regulations on the banks, but it has to be understood that that was just one part of the overall deregulation juggernaut of the Trump administration. And while that was an important part, not just because of its specific provisions, but also because it sent the wrong message. And the message was banks like Silicon Valley Bank that were under $250 billion couldn't be systemic. They weren't systemic. Well, Better Markets was there at the time opposing that. We demonstrated with facts, evidence, and data that those size financial institutions, in fact, are a systemic risk. But nonetheless, Congress passed that and, and loosened some regulations. And then the Federal Reserve, under Chairman Powell and Vice Chairman Quarles, uh, Trump's two key appointees to the Federal Reserve, uh, took that law and enacted rules that deregulated the financial industry even more. Um, but those rules were only one of more than 20 rules that were passed by the Federal Reserve deregulating the banks. And they didn't just deregulate them, they also weakened the supervision of the banks. Um, the Federal Reserve has two big jobs, actually more than two, but the two that are relevant here is the regulation of the banks and the supervision of the banks. And on the supervision of the banks, the banking regulators have thousands of employees who often don't go to work at regulatory agencies. They literally go to the banks and examine the bank's operations. And their job is to make sure that the banks are operating in a safe and sound manner and are not a threat to financial stability. That's the duty of the Federal Reserve supervisors. And they were supposed to be doing that at Silicon Valley Bank. And if the Silicon Valley Bank executives and directors were reckless or irresponsible in running that bank inappropriately, which they clearly appear to have done, then the Federal Reserve supervisors were supposed to be there stopping that. They have a full panoply of tools and weapons to make sure that banks, executives, and directors don't run their banks in a way that pose a threat to safety and soundness. So the 2018 law was important, but it shouldn't obscure the largest story was that it was only one piece of an overall deregulation juggernaut done by the Trump administration across the entire range of the financial industry. But Dennis, my understanding is that the fallout from the Silicon Valley Bank's failure is also resonating in Europe, and the European banking sector is uh, apparently a little unstable and somewhat threatened. And you mentioned Credit Suisse, the possibility it could collapse. The Saudi investors basically said, no, we're not going to throw any more good money after bad. So that's a bad sign. Nouriel Roubini, of course, famous for predicting the 2008 crash, said that if Credit Suisse were to collapse, it would result in a Lehman Brothers moment. Uh, would you agree with that? I think it depends upon... Um how that happens uh it's part of the problem with european banks is they are often referred to as um, national champions which is to say there are countries that um are overly invested not in the technical sense of investing but in the psychological and nationalistic sense overly invested in having big banks and switzerland has two very big banks Frankly, they, they're so big that the entire country uh, probably couldn't bail them out. And similarly, Germany has the national champion of Deutsche Bank. Uh, France has theirs and the UK has theirs. And the problem when you have uh, banks that you think are important to your entire country, they're by definition too big to fail. And that means too often that when they engage in high risk and irresponsible behavior, they are not properly regulated. Um, because they get special treatment from their governments. And so when they get into trouble, uh, it, the uh, implications uh, ripple throughout not just Europe, but the globe. And so the Swiss authorities have already said that they're going to provide whatever liquidity is necessary. Um, there are people already talking about a, for, a forced merger between Credit Suisse 
and UBS, the other big Swiss bank. But the problems that are manifesting now with Credit Suisse, um, unfortunately, are not limited to Credit Suisse. Now, some Credit Suisse has got some unique characteristics, just like Silicon Valley Bank had some unique characteristics, but they also have uh, characteristics that are common with other banks. And one of the problems that uh, many of these banks are having is the increases in interest rates by um, central banks, the Fed in the United States and the ECB in Europe, is that it's causing the repricing of assets across the entire yield spectrum, whether they're treasuries that are two-year treasuries or they go all the way out to 30-year mortgages or junk bonds. Every asset financial asset that these banks have in their portfolios and that they trade and um, engage in variety of activities, all of those assets are being repriced because interest rates are going up after many years of interest rates being almost zero. The Fed uh, in the United States has raised interest rates um, four and a half percent in about six months. That is a pace um, and amount that's almost unprecedented. And that means that um, you see bubbles bursting, the stock market bubble, uh, the crypto bubble, uh, the PE bubble. Um, these were bubbles created by the Fed's, basically their zero interest rate policy that they started after the last crash. And so in some ways, the seeds of the current crisis that basically were planted by Federal Reserve policy over the last 14, 15 years since the 2008 crash, and you see these, all these financial assets are getting repriced to more accurately reflect the risk of those assets. And then when you have a bank like Credit Suisse or a bank like Silicon Valley Bank that has these assets that are being repriced, the problem is, is that the value of those assets go down as interest rates go up and you end up incurring losses. And that usually is covered and should be covered by capital. But... I'll go back to the point earlier, their capital isn't what it should be and their liquidity isn't what it should be because the Trump administration across the board uh, deregulated them, loosened the restrictions and weakened supervision so that they could get away with more high-risk, dangerous activities. Well, Silicon Valley Bank, of course, has, you know, the FDIC bailed out depositors who had below $250,000. But they've also bailed out the big ones as well, and the biggest one of all was Circle. They had $3.3 billion on deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, and they're into crypto. So, Dennis, I just am really annoyed, and that's putting it mildly, with the idea that the government can't take care of students who have an unsupportable student loans, but they can bail out some goddamn crypto company. I, I don't get it. Well, you're right. There's, uh, it is incredibly unfair uh, when you're trying to stop uh, a, a, what's called contagion from a bank failure. And contagion is when a bank fails, if it fails in a disorderly fashion like Silicon Valley Bank, it could precipitate a bunch of other banks from failing and inflicting widespread damage on the financial system and the economy. And so, unfortunately, when you are trying, when you're in the middle of a crisis, you sometimes have to take action where incredibly undesirable people benefit. And that happened very broadly in 2008, where basically Wall Street and all the bankers who actually caused the crash ended up getting bailed out under the uh, rationale that it would have, that was distasteful, but it wasn't as bad as the Second Great Depression. Now, we could argue about that, but what, we, what nobody can argue about is in 2008, uh, those bailouts were done with virtually no terms and conditions, and there was absolutely no accountability for the many bankers and others who actually caused the crash, who engaged in mismanagement, reckless conduct, often illegal and sometimes criminal conduct. They all got the money, they all got bailed out, and they all got away, and Main Street paid the bill. And... This time, uh, the Biden administration is trying to uh, tailor and narrow uh, the programs to prevent contagion. And the president himself, as he said earlier this week, is going to demand accountability. And I think that that has got to be priority one through three, is that, okay, 
um, as I've said for many years, it's one thing if you have to save the banks, but damn it, don't save every damn banker. And in this case, Silicon Valley Bank, um, its failure reminds me of uh, the movie Murder on the Orient Express, because there were a number of causes of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, and there were a number of contributors. And what that means is that there are a lot of people who should be held accountable. First and foremost, the directors and officers of Silicon Valley Bank appear to have acted with gross mismanagement and recklessness, if not engaging in illegal activity. And the Justice Department and the SEC and others are already intensely focused on reviewing their behavior. And we can only hope that those investigations will get to the bottom of their conduct and that they will be held accountable for what happened to that bank. But the bank directors and officers are supposed to be held in check by regulators. As I said earlier, the Federal Reserve Banks, uh, the Federal Reserve Board's supervisors were supposed to be ensuring that this bank was operated in a safe and sound manner and not a threat to financial stability. And it's objectively true now that it was not operated that way and it was a threat to financial stability. They should have seen it. They should have stopped it. They didn't. The Federal Reserve supervisors appear to have been AWOL here. And there needs to be a full investigation of the Federal Reserve supervision. And it needs to be an outside independent investigator. Unfortunately, Chair Powell, the chairman of the Fed, announced uh, that the Fed was going to investigate itself and investigate its failures and report to the public in six weeks um, what they find. But that has all the earmarks of a cover-up and a whitewash, and he shouldn't be allowed to get away with that. The administration and everybody else should demand an independent, comprehensive, thorough, outside investigation of what happened to cause the failure of Federal Reserve supervision, report those facts to the public, and then take corrective action to make sure that it never happens again. There needs to be accountability here for those who caused it, principally the bankers, and those who should have seen it and stopped it, and that includes the regulators. And of course, the other thing that should happen quite quickly is that the regulations that the Trump deregulators put in place that enabled these banks to engage in such irresponsible, high-risk activities, those regulations need to be changed. Right now, the Federal Reserve should immediately begin to review and revise those regulations. And they can do that. They don't need an act of Congress. Um, they can do that on their own now. The 2018 law that you referred to earlier, Ian, that would require Congress to change the law. But with the Republicans controlling the House and the power and influence of the financial industry in Washington, D.C., the likelihood of meaningful, effective laws being passed to correct the, the mistakes of the Trump administration are quite low. And so we can't wait for Congress to get smart and act quickly. That's not going to happen. But the regulators, the Biden regulators, now have to go back, review and revise the regulations that unleash these banks and put them in a position where they can endanger our financial system and our economy. So just in closing then, Dennis, along with the people that you've named that should be held accountable, it seems that people on television and the Wall Street economists and the people that cover Wall Street, in terms of picking stocks, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Securities, Jefferies, and Goldman Sachs were all just up until a couple of days before SVB collapsed, was saying what a great stock it was. And along with Jim Cramer of CNBC, he was saying SBC is one of the top 10 performers of 2023. So should they be held accountable? Well, you know, I think the American people uh, are smart enough not to listen to these hucksters who have uh, a rather remarkable record of being consistently wrong. And I think people have to pay attention to who's paying these mouthpieces. Uh, and I think if you look at the people who are advertising uh, and who's paying the salaries of these people, um, you know, uh, people ought to uh, really question the value of what they have to say. There's pretty poor accountability in the what I'll call the opinion business, be it on TV or be it at 
um, financial firms touting stocks. Um, we've learned repeatedly over the last several decades that um, most recommendations are incredibly unreliable and usually line up with whoever the mouthpiece's paymaster is. And I think people have to take caveat emptor and protect themselves by not listening to those people. Um, but there are plenty of people who need accountability. And you mentioned earlier the fact that, um, you know, Circle, a crypto firm, had $3.3 billion in uninsured deposits at Silicon Valley Bank uh, that are now being protected. Um, and uh, there, ha there should be an investigation of these gigantic companies that put outsized uninsured deposits into this one bank in a way that would appear that they didn't do their due diligence. Um, there are some of those who had money there that were fiduciaries. It's hard to see how somebody could have satisfied their fiduciary duties by putting large amounts of uninsured cash into a bank that was being operated in a flagrantly um, irresponsible way. And I should say that what happened at Silicon Valley Bank was not a secret. It was the, the risks they were taking uh, and the vulnerabilities and the fragile, fragile nature of that bank were well known. On November 11th of 2022, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, um, the vulnerabilities and risks at the Silicon Valley Bank were detailed. And short sellers have been circling the bank for some time, and they too have been identifying the vulnerabilities, and it's been reported that Moody's, was, Moody's uh, rating agency was going to downgrade Silicon Valley Bank, and that means the rating agencies knew. So the media is reporting on it. Short sellers are circling. The rating agencies know it. That means this is easily knowable information, and anybody who didn't act consistent with that should have their conduct scrutinized, evaluated, and there should be accountability. Well, Dennis, I thank you for so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Dennis Kelleher, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Better Markets, Inc., a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization that promotes the public interest in the U.S. and global financial markets. Better Markets is a Wall Street watchdog and has been referred to as, quote, a persistent thorn in the side of Wall Street. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half